Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. Christian, we're at the end of yet another wonderful blend of the month, curated by yours truly. How you feeling? I outdid myself. You did do quite well this month. I, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this movie, but in general, I'm coming away from this month very pleased. Do you have any sort of general thoughts you'd like to share before we get into this week's movie, American Graffiti? It's... Okay. At one point, you told me, and I think we have it recorded, that George Lucas's contributions to film are much more cultural than they are stylistic or craftsmanship-y. I am interested to hear if you still believe that after we speak on this movie. An intriguing lead-in. Before we get there and discuss our thoughts on the movie, as we have done the past couple weeks, we'd love to share some background info on American Graffiti, talk a little bit about why we picked it for this marathon, and some of the lasting impact that it had, one of the most iconic movies of 1973, most certainly. All right, so let's let's delve into American Graffiti. American Graffiti is directed by George Lucas, co-written by him. It is also written by Gloria Katz and uh, Willard Hike. So th- this is this is it. It's like set in 1962, Modesto, California. It. It's the last day before a group of recent high school graduates are supposed to go off to college. And it's just a night out in the town, driving around, listening to rock and roll music, kind of wondering what it is that they've accomplished so far and what it is that they have to look forward to in life. This is George Lucas's second directed feature after the THX 180, I want to say. THX 1138 or 1138. I'm not sure how you say it, but yeah. Sure, sure. That one. And uh, this came right before Star Wars, which is 77, I want to say. Little genre picture, Star Wars. Yes, that was 77. Here's the thing. American Graffiti is the first movie of George Lucas's, the second being Star Wars. The first of his to be nominated for Best Picture alongside Best Director. So it, it, it's an ensemble film and not plot driven at all. Which is kind of interesting to think of this as a precursor to Star Wars considering that Star Wars is all plot. Not that it's not heavy with characters, but let's kind of start there. What influences do you see in the scope of George Lucas's filmography and his contributions to pop culture that first manifested themselves in American Graffiti? Because we have greasers and rock and rollers just hanging around, cruising around, doing chicken races and uh, not much else yeah i'm glad that i've finally seen american graffiti because as you alluded to it's very different from star wars it's extremely different from star wars and yet it's still an influential movie 
And we each, in our texting before recording here, shared a couple movies we thought were, if not one that you shared that I have no idea if it was directly inspired, but one that I shared that is absolutely directly inspired, because the movie that I mentioned to you is Dazed and Confused by Richard Linklater, which if you've seen Dazed and Confused, then you've seen American Graffiti 10 years later. Dazed and Confused being shot in the 90s, but set in the 70s just like american graffiti was shot in the 70s but set in the 60s and it's a very very similar movie in terms of the key date whereas dazed and confused is instead of the end of the summer the first day of summer and following students of different ages dazed and confused follows seniors or who just finished up as well as eighth graders who are becoming freshmen and American Graffiti follows mostly seniors who've just graduated, but also some students who will still be hanging around. So that's the clearest inspiration that I can see in terms of influencing this movie. But one thing that is interesting about American Graffiti when thinking about Star Wars is that American Graffiti traffics in nostalgia. It's George Lucas reflecting on his own life, growing up in Modesto and exploring some of the things he felt at the time now that he was older. And Star Wars, of course, not necessarily nostalgic in the 70s because it was brand new, but now is a franchise for which I and probably a billion other people have nostalgic feelings for. So it's interesting that he made a movie very much about this sense of nostalgia he had it was his direct uh, film before his franchise that he would spawn that now traffics in nostalgia itself. All right. So let's think about it also. I'll, I'll go into some rough definitions of hangout movies in a second, because this is the definitive hangout movie, as in the one that probably came before any of the other hangout movies we see now. Uh, let's look at just the inspirations in George Lucas's filmography. This is a movie where if you do not enjoy being with the characters, you will not like this film. That is kind of quintessential. Wanting to be friends with, wanting to just spend time with the atmosphere that this movie created. And I think that's one of the clearest and most direct lines of of similarities that we can gauge with this and Star Wars itself. Because not only was it crucial to build a war in Star Wars, we were led to want to hang out with Luke and Leia and Han and C-3PO and R2-D2 and to see what was going on with them versus all the bad guys, sure. But I think that what George Lucas is going for in, in most of his films, written and directed, because he did this with Indiana Jones or sought to do this with Indiana Jones, my thoughts on that aside, the most compelling nature of someone you just you just want to be with. So I was doing some some kind of research into what even a hangout movie encompasses because there can be a lot of things that go alongside hangout movies. Uh, I have some thoughts on it. Someone else who has some thoughts on it are Quentin Tarantino, 
whose quote is, there are certain movies that you hang out with the character so much that they actually become your friends. And that's a really rare quality to have in a film, and those movies are usually quite long because it actually takes that long of a time to get past a movie character where you actually feel that you know the person and you like them. When it's over, they're your friends. There's not too much exposition in these films because the idea is not to explain why this person should be your friend. The idea is to have you live life alongside them. That's kind of what I'm getting, and it's very cool to think that a film so critically successful, also done on a very, very small budget, I think less than a million dollars, even adjusted for inflation, I want to say that it would only be like $3.5 million, $4 million today. Very small budget, and yet raked it in at the box office and nominated for all of these Oscars. So I, I guess that the experiment worked. Well, not even the experiment. George Lucas was able to create a film that at least that many people wanted to hang out with. We haven't really talked about the plot of American Graffiti. It, it, there's there's not much there <laughs> in terms of plot. So, and and the influences of American Graffiti are still coming along. I mean, the one film that I texted to you was Lover's Rock, a film in the Small Axe Anthology directed and co-written by Steve McQueen that came out last year in November on Prime, which is a West Indies blues dance night in, I want to say, 1979 in London somewhere, where they're just dancing around, and the point of the film is for you to dance around with them. So, it's... There's a lot going on. There's its influences are still are still being felt, but any other thoughts or ideas on why 1973 in terms of hangout movies this would work or just background information on hangout movies in general? I think something key to American Graffiti as a hangout movie and Dazed and Confused, like I mentioned, is specifically the high school or going off to college setting because that's something that so many Americans or people who live in this country, whether or not they identify as an American, go through the experience of going to high school, going through high school, and then deciding to go to college or not. And I have no idea how popular the idea of a high school movie was before this time, 1973, but obviously high school movies have become a dominant genre in American movies from John Hughes in the 80s, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, to more of the raunchy comedies in the 2000s with Superbad and, I mean, there's a million other options. They're all failing to come to mind right now, but even some of the more <laughs> dramatic So options, many that I can't remember So many one. that I can't think of. One that came to mind for some reason, it's a movie I haven't seen, I have no idea why it came to mind, was I Love You, Beth Cooper, a movie that barely anybody I saw. I have seen I Love You, Beth Cooper. Go. It is a hangout movie. So. <laughs> and even more on the dramatic side of things, I think of The Perks of Being a Wallflower, which is such a high school movie to watch when you're in high school. I have no idea what I would think if I watched it now, but I loved it in high school. High school is just an important time in a person's life in the USA and so making a movie set in that time period of a person's life is almost evergreen in that we can all relate we can all look back and there are things that I absolutely cannot relate to from this high school experience 
because I had a cell phone in high school. I <laughs> I didn't drink a drop of liquor in high school. I whatever. There's a million things I didn't race. I didn't race in high school. There's a million things I didn't do, but there's still so much that I can connect with because I've But you been weren't in a transitionary that. period. Yeah. I can I can it's true. I can connect with some of these feelings regardless. So again, I don't know if Spielberg or Spielberg, wow, if George Lucas invented this genre so to speak but that's part of what makes american graffiti an evergreen movie one that we can always relate to because it's one of these early high school hangout movies that are easy to rewatch and easy to return to i i i will attack that in a second it's only easy to rewatch if you actually want to spend time with these people it's not easy to rewatch if you care If, if you don't like them you will never see this film again and and that's kind of the point though there's no plot there to keep you interested if you hate the characters if you hate the characters it's done and over with and so it, that's that's kind of critical in terms of the writing and the direction and the performances it because it it's it's not like one can compensate with the other any part of that fails and you don't you don't really got something but let's let i i will digress that Looking and forward to unpacking it shortly. Are you ready to move on to a couple of fun facts? Oh boy, am I ready to share some fun facts. I love that we're making time for this now. It it really just brings me joy to get to share these about the movies we watch. I am going to uh, start it off with a fun fact related to my personal favorite actor who appears in this movie, Harrison Ford. He has a small role as Bob Falfa, great name. And apparently he was asked to cut his hair so he could wear it as like a flat top and he refused. So he wore a hat instead of cutting his hair. That was their compromise. <laughs> Love Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford was <laughs> pushing 30 or maybe exactly 30 when he appeared in this movie. Yeah, I don't so, think he's supposed to be it's... a high schooler though. No, no, no. I Well, maybe he's like a supposed to represent a college dropout or something maybe or like a someone who never or a high school dropout someone who never went to college and just kind of stayed behind it but it's also like harrison ford was working as a carpenter and then was like sure i guess i'll do this movie but i kind of need money for my wife and two kids it's true he uh really had a rebound there focusing going from tiny bit parts in terms of his acting career into carpentry coming back to American graffiti. And then obviously becoming one of the biggest actors the world has ever seen. <laughs> Good job, Harrison Ford. <laughs> uh, all right. So another fun fact, George Lucas kind of made this movie out of spite, which is amazing because so his first film THX four different numbers was said to be, not engaging with the audience enough and so his wife and uh, francis ford coppola of the godfather fame and apocalypse now fame also told him like hey if if you're gonna make a movie like the audience should should care and so george lucas was like but anyone can do that and so decided to make american graffiti proving that he could do that (laughs) he could make people care about the I was going to say plot, but like whatever little there is of plot. And also those who are inhabiting a world. Our guy, George Lucas, making movies out of spite. You got to love it. Francis Ford Coppola produced this movie. And 
in terms of other fun facts, I also saw that the studio increased George Lucas's budget from 600,000 to 700 whatever thousand it became because Coppola signed on as a producer. So big thanks to Francis Ford Coppola as well. He made The Godfather and people were willing to give him money to do anything. Any other fun facts for you, Christian? I got a couple, but I don't want to dominate the uh, court here. There's a great fact about this movie and Elvis. So this movie had so many different rock songs that were right, correct about the era. But as the studio was looking for the rights to use these rock songs in, in the movie, they couldn't get the rights from the studio that had Elvis. And because of that, I, this is there's a magnificent quote I found about this. These these 1960s high schoolers or recent high school graduates are probably the only 1963 high schoolers or 62 high schoolers who were not listening to Elvis while driving around town at night. Yeah, it is kind of crazy that they don't have any Elvis in this movie. It's the behind the scenes story affecting what ends up on screen. Okay, last couple. I have to indulge myself, but. Number one, shout out to George Lucas. The budget was so small, he wasn't really able to pay all the crew members, but he offered to give them a credit instead. And apparently, that wasn't always the thing to do at the time. It was transitioning from the old Hollywood practice of just giving department heads credit. And so, that is obviously now more of a credit. You have movies that their credits go on for 10 minutes because they're shouting out every single digital artist which worked on the CGI sequences. So good job, George Lucas. There's some actual behind-the-scenes influence and not just with what he put on screen. And also, the THX 1138, his first movie, is the license plate for John Milner, one of the characters in this movie, if you didn't pick up on that. They were, last fun fact from me, they were kicked out of the first play, of the first city where they were filming. People complained, uh, like they had to shut down streets, businesses were angry, someone was caught like growing pot. The town was like, we don't want you here anymore. <laughs> so they moved to like a town 20 miles north. This was not filmed in Modesto because also George Lucas was like, well, Modesto, Modesto has changed too much in the past 10 years. I don't want it anymore. And it, so it wasn't filmed there. So unfortunate. I Yeah, there's stories about Harrison Ford and the other young actors getting drunk after filming and I didn't, I didn't know somebody actually grew pot, though. That's pretty funny. <laughs> the, the thing about fun facts that's fun to share is obviously they're fun facts, but it also does provide a little bit of the sense of the context around this movie, whether it's George Lucas giving people credits and that it helping to initiate a change in Hollywood or stuff like people growing pot behind the scenes, showing you the raucous atmosphere <laughs> the actors were building. But we digress because it's time... To share our thoughts on this movie, Christian. But telling you all day, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this. I I honestly didn't know how you would come out of it. So you have curated this blend, which means you have the opportunity to now ask me the opening question. So you get to hear my thoughts first before we hear from you. All right, Scott, here is your opening question. This is a hangout movie. There's nothing else to this film except a place where people want to hang out, whether it's the characters hanging out with each other or the audience hanging out with those characters. Now, did you find yourself, after watching this film, wanting to hang out with the likes of Kurt and Toad and uh, all of them, or 
you know, did you not? Were you like, well, they're fine. I'm going to spend my time somewhere else. And also, lastly, what made the audience of 1973 want to hang out with these people too? So, first things first, did I want to hang out with these people? You know, I honestly don't know if I would want to hang out with some of these people. I would definitely want to hang out with Kurt. He's my speed. But otherwise, I'm not entirely sure. John Milner's the kind of guy who intimidated me when I was in high school. Steve you don't want to hang out with John? What's wrong with you? Steve Bolander seems like kind of a frat boy in the making. You don't want to hang out with legendary film director Ron Howard playing one of his earliest roles before he became legendary film director Ron Howard? And Terry the Toad. I would probably have been friends with Terry the Toad, let's be honest here. So, all in all, I don't know if I would have wanted to hang out with these people in real life. Some of them definitely, some of them I'm not sure. But I don't think that affects the movie so much for me. Because I enjoyed getting to spend time in the lives of these characters. So even though it's a hangout movie, and part of the goal is wanting to build that hope in me that I would hang out with these people or people like them, and I didn't entirely connect to that, I still really did connect to this movie and these characters in general. So I don't know if that's sort of a cop-out answer, but <laughs> I, 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 I like these characters, even if they weren't all people I would actually have spent time with in real life. So was this movie not successful then for you? I think think it absolutely was successful and it's going to be appearing at least somewhere in our awards later on in this episode as we always wrap up each blend with some awards so definitely a fan of american graffiti despite the fact that i didn't deeply connect to all of the characters okay controversial no yes uh, okay let's let let, let me just put all my cards on the table this is a movie that on paper i would hate (laughs) <laughs> i know <laughs> that's why i was curious to hear what you would say there's absolutely no plot <laughs> whatsoever the characters aren't even 100 percent fleshed out it's it, it it's not like i'm delving into all their nuanced complexities well i you can make an argument against that but i i kind of loved it like i loved it a lot And I'm so unsure of so many things, but I thought that this... Okay, okay, okay. The first hour of this movie, had I just seen it, I would have been like, that was kind of a waste of my time. When we got the second hour, and they were like, no, this movie is still going, I felt good. I felt okay. I felt like... Especially John's character, that I could do stuff with these people, that these were people I wanted to hang out with in in high school. And now, I do think a cornerstone of this movie is Kurt. I think that without Kurt, this, I mean, I think that without any of these characters, the movie falls apart, but I think that the majority of that rests on Kurt. That, that, that being said, I, I don't know what it was. I think it was that it was only one night. It was, it was aimless in the sense that they were literally driving around, not going anywhere. But the idea was there's this budding sense, not of anxiety, but of uncertainty 
about what the next day would bring because the next day they are off to college or not. <laughs> Some of them are still deciding that. So it's beautiful in the sense that I loved how these characters were trying to put off their problems and not think about them. And for that very reason, I wanted to hang out with them so that we could all put off our problems together. Definitely relatable in that way. And trying to just deal with the problems later. We'll figure that out. Let's live in the moment. And that living in the moment is one of the timeless aspects of this movie. Again, I mentioned it. Richard Linklater replicates the formula with some variations, but the same formula 20 years later in Dazed and Confused. And it's another iconic American movie because these timeless factors aren't going to change. We can all relate to that feeling of being unsure about going to college. We can all relate to that feeling of not knowing if we want to leave our hometown and, or not feeling ent entirely comfortable in the persona we have or how we present ourselves or how people see us. And I don't know if I would agree that the characters aren't quote unquote fleshed out, which even you, you didn't stand by that thought entirely, you know, you, you qualified it, but still we get a, a really strong sense of who these people are early on in the movie. And we just get to uncover the different layers that they all have as time goes on. I think it's really, really effective in terms of the, writing it's not mind-blowing by any means but still setting up all of these characters and in terms of the direction then bouncing between their stories throughout the movie we get such a good but, sense but of who they are let, let's no 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 defend that why isn't the writing mind-blowing mind-blowing specifically because i i just mean it's not an all-time great screenplay necessarily but the screenplay is beautiful yeah not anyone could have done this screenplay no. This screenplay is actually defies logic in so many ways. How does it defy logic? Because to be able to craft a screenplay where the majority of it has to do just small actions of certain characters, but caveating that by giving the momentum of a meandering storyline a ticking time bomb, time bomb in whether or not these people will choose to go to college or not, whether or not all of them, like Steve and Lori, will end up together, or whether Terry and Debbie will, or like, whether Debbie will stay with Terry after she finds out all, like, that Terry's not actually a hunting, drinking car owning <laughs> basically it's i think that the screenplay makes the rest of the movie work and of course yes the directing fantastically beautiful and gorgeous but this is kind of a world-class screenplay yeah i mean I, I don't even mean to say that it's not good i i i just was saying in terms of a a grade scale it's it's not in my mind an a plus but it's still a, an a or an a minus and this, this, <laughs> that's that's why I just said it's not mind blowing, uh, specifically. But it's still really, really strong. And I think the structure, which we haven't even fully explained and given the sort of logline for this movie, so let me say that real quick. But following along the adventures, as we said, the last night before school and before these newly graduated folks fly off to college, uh, we have Kurt, Steve, John, 
and Terry, these four male friends, and the ladies in their lives, Lori and Debbie and so on. And the just misadventures they have on this night before Kurt and Steve are set to fly off to college and John and Terry are ready to start at the junior college in the town. What I didn't know going into this movie was that they split up and each go on these different adventures. So Kurt tries to find this blonde woman that he sees, hoping to have one last romantic fling before flying off to college, but he himself is struggling with the question of will he or won't he go. Steve and Laurie are the all-American couple that everybody thinks is the definition of love, but they have a conversation about their relationship at the beginning of the movie that they argue about for the rest of it, and they try to figure out if their relationship will survive Steve going off to college. John gets stuck after trying to woo this car full of girls. He gets given the 12-year-old sister of one of them and then has to basically babysit her the rest of the night and not get her in trouble because she's 12. And Terry, the nerdy friend of the group who's called Terry the Toad, ends up with Debbie, this beautiful girl who he, while driving somebody else's car, picks up and is all proud of himself. And so he's trying to be this guy that he's not. And all of the intercutting between these different scenes and adventures is handled so well where you never really lose a sense of what's going on with each storyline. And you effectively cut across all of them. And of course, they all come to a head at the end. And that is easily the strongest strength of the screenplay, Lucas and his co-writers who we mentioned, um, Katz and, and Hike here. And I just, I think one aspect of Richard Linklater's script and Dazed and Confused that I've mentioned a couple times now is that it keeps the people together more and they're sort of trading between groups. And so you get the chemistry of different characters and actors throughout the movie. Whereas American Graffiti keeps it typically the same groups of people for most of the movie. And Linklater obviously is more philosophical writer. He's more esoteric, more intellectual than Lucas, uh, who's writing a little bit more naturalistically here. And I think for whatever reason, Dazed and Confused works a little bit better for me. But again, I I do agree that this is a very well-written movie. Certainly not complaining that it was nominated for an Oscar in that category, correct? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) All that's about the writing, and you don't even know if it got nominated for an Oscar. It it has to do with more than Oscars, bro. Yeah, it was. It was. (laughs) Okay. So, so, okay. All right, all right. Which storyline do you think was most compelling? That is that is a good question. And it's hard to say. I I don't even know which storyline I like the most cuz I'm what's coming to mind right now is kind of the bits and pieces that I didn't like as much. <laughs> Kurt gets essentially kidnapped by greasers in a gang. <laughs> and I don't know how I feel about their misadventures. Steve and Lori argue and get back together and argue and get back together all night long. John is saddled with 12-year-old Carol, and sometimes their interactions are really funny. Sometimes they're a little creepy, I guess. And Terry the Toad, he has Debbie. And if I had to pick one, I might go Terry. He's a wonderful wonderful nerd living the night of his dreams, and of course it all goes wrong. And... (laughs) Uh, I can relate to being a wonderful nerd. So maybe maybe Terry and Debbie are my favorite there. But I didn't really assess out which, which storyline was my favorite. What about you? For sure. Definitely John. And, big, well, big John, John and Carol. And Carol guy. Because Carol's a, like 12 or 13. 
and gets stuck with this 18-year-old. Well, basically, he gets stuck with her and is driving around and she's not wanting to go home. She wants to ride around with the big, strong 18-year-old guy. And he's like, screw my life, man. I don't want to have this little girl near me. I want to race my car. It's it's a movie that takes all of the nuances of high school experience of, of I like doing this, so I'm going to do it. And just releases them into our conscience of let's not think about whether or not we're going to be successful in life or whether or not we're going to stay with the girl or whether or not we we are going to have the money that we need or whether we're deadbeats or not. Let's just live. And it's not living forever. If this movie were to have dragged on for many days in the sense of if there was no ticking time bomb of we're only here for a night, I would have hated it. I would have absolutely hated it. But there's this, at the forefront of my mind was always this idea, this is going to end. This is going to end for them. And that ending shot and that ending scene where they're all gathered together at the airport is both wonderful and also one of the saddest things to behold. I don't really know what else I can say about this movie. I mean, I can uh, through its iconography, it's gorgeous. The cars here, the muscle cars here are fantastic to look at. With the balance such a small between... budget, I'm so surprised they yes. were able to evoke the 60s in such a realistic way. These things cost money, let alone getting the rights to the songs, let alone no, shooting they on got... location. They got the peop- They got local owners of muscle cars to lend their cars for the movie and just paid them like $20, $25. And now those cars are <laughs> famous forever, and those people had 20 bucks in 1973. <laughs> I am trying to think if there's anything else we can actually say about the movie. I have a couple things I wanted to get your thoughts on. So Lucas was as we said, inspired by his own high school experience and specifically about the idea of cruising, which if we didn't do a good job of, of explaining this, basically high schoolers hanging out in this day and age, they would all get in their cars, they would go for a drive and they would just see what happened, which is why John Milner's leaning out of his car trying to pick up chicks because as unsettling as it is in 2021 and the advances we've made in male, female interactions and romancing, that was apparently a thing for high schoolers just to pick up chicks by asking them to come get in my car. People would drive and hang out with different folks, jump into different cars, go to different restaurants, go to different events, things of that nature. So in terms of the cruising experience specifically, which was already gone by the time Lucas is making this movie, just a a, a quick quote that I found online was him saying he felt compelled to document the experience and what his generation used as a way of meeting girls. Like that was part of his desire to make this movie. How much did you connect with specifically the cruising or was it more the characters and the friends we made along the way that, that helped you enjoy this movie? I think that the cruising was kind of an integral part because there's a lot of people getting kicked out of cars and people getting put into cars it almost felt like you were in a certain dimension and as you left your car you were transported to another one each car was its own specific cog and you were looking to see it how all of them fit into the machine so i thought it was i thought it was great 
because I the best way to describe this movie and I I think that no movie I've seen does it better than Ferris Bueller's Day Off it is a breath of fresh air it is a relaxing time I just want to be here I just don't really want to do anything else so also a hangout movie just reserved to three people one of whom is maybe an imaginary friend although I reject that theory uh something else I think even if we can sum up uh, part of Lucas's aim based on that quote. Another reason that high school movies like this can be successful is that they function as documents or time capsules even of a certain day and age. And there's something to connect with about getting to see the experiences of essentially, I guess my this is b- a little bit after my grandparents' time growing up in high school. I think my grandparents would have been in high school in the 50s, but... Again, early 60s, maybe it's close enough. This is how my grandparents would have grown up and done high school. It's one of the joys of the movies is getting to discover different time periods, different ways of doing life, even though we can't visit them or we're not watching a documentary. So in terms of the time capsule nature of it, was there anything particular about this time period? I think the ending especially sums it up really well. It's kind of provocative, but anything else about this time period that felt important to you not just in the hanging out but oh this is an important part of the american experience or something of that nature i think that it best comes to mind when i think about steve and Lori's relationship that there's this idea where you think the end of the world is literally based on whatever decision you make at the end of high school that you're going to throw yourself into it and if you don't do what's right or you don't stay with the girl or or you don't stay with the guy or you choose to go to college instead of stay the the rest of the world falls apart and it's that over romanticization of how no other time in your life will carry the weight that you have right then and there when you're 18 that is was captured so well i can remember being an 18 being 18 being in high school and thinking oh frick i messed up this means that the entire world is over amen that is a relatable experience (laughs) and that and so i admired them putting decisions off for such a long period of time it's like it felt as though they had the nuclear codes and at any point they could hit the button and so their decision was to pretend like the button wasn't there that's where i'm going with it um American Graffiti, fantastic. Ensemble cast, fantastic. Direction, fantastic. Screenplay, fantastic. Let's just move on to the awards, Scott. Yes. It's time. It's time to get into the awards for the 1973 Blend of the Month. Before we do, just a quick reminder, if you did not have a chance to watch American Graffiti, it and the sequel, More American Graffiti, are both streaming on HBO Max. So check it out there if you haven't had a chance yet. So, Christian, I now turn it back to you. You curated this month for us, and you did an excellent job of it. Now we shall talk about the awards that you have come up with for us to award to these movies. So... Go ahead and introduce our first category. Most iconic or influential scene. Most iconic and influential scene. That's a really good question. As we talked about, each of these movies were so influential for different reasons. And when I step back and try to think about a specific scene that was extremely influential, 
I actually went with something from Enter the Dragon. And what I chose from Enter the Dragon is the final scene, the fight in the Hall of Mirrors. It's an environment that has been repeated over and over again in James Bond, in John Wick, in so many different kinds of movies and TV shows. Bruce Lee himself, the unbeatable action hero, no matter his scars and how much blood he's lost, is still, of course, going to win the day there in that hall. So I think visually it's astonishing, really fun just to look at, but also is the wrap-up to an awesome martial arts movie and creating an icon and a legend of Bruce Lee before his untimely passing. So I went with the Hall of Mirrors from Enter the Dragon. I went with The Exorcist, the one where Reagan looks at the astronaut, says, you're going to die up there, and then pees. Interesting. That's your most influential scene. Not personal favorite scene. So why why did you pick that for influential? Oh, I think it's the most iconic. Like, imagine trying to say, oh, what's something wild that happened in The Exorcist? This girl just peed. She just didn't even care. <laughs> and she this... was possessed. <laughs> And that's that's the thing, though. You're like, what does it mean to be possessed? She just peed on the floor. I I think that it was kind of funny in the most jacked up way possible. And when you are going to start showing signs of someone facing the absolute worst that someone can face. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'll go with that. Possessions are basically have been done to death in horror movies and that's because they treat it they, they treat it like a horror movie not like it's a real thing and i feel like if a little girl were to do that i wouldn't think it's a horror movie i would think that someone is disturbed so yes i'm gonna go with that scene from the exorcist still might uh might bristle with your your choice of that scene for iconic and influential because there's scenes i knew about from the exorcist before i watched it but it's your choice so I won't argue too much. What's our next category? I will shut this podcast down right now, Sky. I know, I know. Best performance. Best performance. Um, Let me set the timer to two hours before you start. Two hours? I don't have two hours to speak on this. <laughs> and my first answer was quick. Thank you. I spent less time than you did. Best performance. I, again, thought seriously about Bruce Lee, but I was thinking that some of the performances in The Exorcist were too strong for me to deny. And ultimately, my choice for this award is none other than Linda Blair playing Reagan slash Pazuzu in The Exorcist. I think back to that movie and I often have problems with child performances because obviously young folks do not always have the acting and intellectual emotional capabilities of just a full-grown adult but excellent child performances can be captivating and despite the fact that she gets very gross and hideous looking and says some horrible things by the end of this movie i think linda blair did a phenomenal job at such a young age playing this victim of a possession and i think it must have been so challenging to have even said the things that she said, because of course her voice was dubbed over later, to have done some of the things she had to do. And I just think it's incredible commitment from a performer, which is often something that leads to a great performance. Not always, can be overcommitment at times, but I think she was incredible and part of what makes that movie so successful. So 
Linda Blair is my choice for this award. Paul and Ma as John Milner. Whoa, John Milner gets your award. Speak on it. John Milner. He's good. I mean, look, this is the thing. When you're writing a character and you're directing someone and this person has to embody it, I do think that a good amount of importance should be on whether or not I care about the individual. And I've told you this before. Out of all of the people in The Exorcist, the only one I cared about was the priest. Here, I cared about several of them, actually. And so when it broke it down as to who here gave me a performance that felt so naturalistic and inviting, it was going to be either Kurt or John, Richard Dreyfuss or Paul Lamont. And ultimately, Paul Lamont was the guy that everyone wanted to hang out with, whose affirmation you needed in order to survive. And so I think that that, to embody that, to be that cool, yeah, hell yeah, Paul Lamont. To be that cool and also capture those moments when he's not feeling so confident as the coolest guy around. Definitely a really, really good performance. I wish we had made a little bit more time to talk about the actors and the acting in American Graffiti because there's some truly famous people in that movie and great performances all around, but alas. Last category, it's the old standard. Of course, it's Best Picture. And if I get to go first, once again, even though I stole your thunder from announcing the award, my Best Picture... I thought hard about it. Enter the Dragon is super entertaining. Just say the name. Just say the name. Bruce Lee iconic performance. The Exorcist, an incredibly iconic and influential, super important film. And yet my best picture is American Graffiti. We actually took a sort of a half step up uh, for each of these movies. I've only logged one of them in Letterboxd so far, but Enter the Dragon is about like a three and a half for me, The Exorcist is a four, and I think American Graffiti is sort of like a four and a half out of five. Just very much my kind of movie. A really, really well done ensemble hangout movie. Brilliant time capsule for a period in American history. And I'm partially George Lucas. What can I say? So American Graffiti. What about you, Christian? Oh, it's American Graffiti. Except my movies were more like two and a half than four than four and a half. And I... Uh, again, if it were just the first half hour of this movie, two and a half or three. But when George Lucas forced me to sit down for another hour and was like, no, 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 wait, 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 you'll see. I was like, you know what, George? I did see. <laughs> Christian has seen the light. Well, Christian, even though it seems like I maybe liked it better because I liked Enter the Dragon more than you, a really great month to kick off the year here in January, looking back at 1973. Would you like to tell the people what we're going to be doing next week? And also, thank you. I am looking forward to doing another year's retrospective eventually. It will be fun. There are, there. I mean, we should just stay in the 70s, obviously. It's an incredible decade for the movies. Next week, we get to another streaming recommendations episode. It's been a while since we did one of the classic streaming recommendations episodes with four movies, two for looking back, two for looking ahead. So I'm excited about that. To guide us as we look back, we'll be recommending two ensemble movies to honor American Graffiti, our best picture for this Blend of the Month. And to look ahead, we're not going to spoil what the February Blend of the Month is going to be, but we will be recommending, each be recommending a movie directed by Robert Zemeckis. There's your hint, a movie directed by Robert Zemeckis. With that, Thank you so much if you have reached this point of the show because it means you listened, and we sincerely appreciate it, folks. If you wouldn't mind, there are some 
things you can do to support the show. Number one, leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. Helps us reach new listeners there. And feel free to share episodes as you listen. It definitely helps us reach new listeners. We also appreciate emails to cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. And I said I would shout out Kate Williams last week. So, Kate, thanks for your patience. Uh, She mentioned that we were her number two podcast. There's only one ahead of us. So that means a lot. Thanks, Kate. And she threw out some ideas for us to cover. Asked us to consider We Can Be Heroes, the Shark Boy and Lava Girl sequel. Not sure how I feel about that, Christian. But hey, Kate, we thank you for recommending it. Uh, we, sh- we might have to look at it just because you sent us a nice email. So thanks for that. But it doesn't have Taylor Lautner. It doesn't have Taylor Lautner. Is it really a sequel to Shark Boy and Lava Girl? I don't know. Some other ways you can follow, uh, support us here. Follow Christian and myself on Letterboxd, where, as we mentioned, we share the things that we're watching. Throw up some words, a star rating here and there. And you can follow us and the show on Twitter. Would appreciate you uh, retweeting our tweets, as uh, usually it's just me. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening at home? You're welcome. Ever the humble one you are, Christian. Next week, two ensemble movies and two movies directed by Robert Zemeckis. We're looking forward to February, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.